Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're doing another bonus episode. I am talking to John Daniel Trask. Everybody I talk to around him calls him JD. I think I call him JD, too. So uh, anyway, JD, welcome to the show. You're the CEO of Raygun. We've talked on and off for the last several years, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. But yeah, sounds like you've had some interesting and exciting stuff going on in your life over the last couple of years. Do you want to just fill us in, let us know where you're at now, and then we'll jump in and talk about software monitoring? Yeah, sure. Well, and thank you very much for having having me back on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, the last couple of years, I think last time we spoke, I was still based up in Seattle, li- literally mm-hmm. living across the road from the Amazon headquarters, which was always quite inspiring, to be honest, as a, as a, <laughs> as a business builder. You're kind of like, wow, yeah. okay, that's that's the potential. Yeah, no, so that was good. We moved back to New Zealand at the end of 2018 for the birth of our first child. So that's been exciting. And Ooh, I think my, well, thank you. Uh, his, his name is Henry. He's uh, going to be two years in, in March. And um, mm-hmm. I think my wife has, has grown thoroughly bored of me making comparisons between machine learning algorithms and watching him develop. <laughs> and being like, oh, I can see how he's like <laughs> conflated these things and he's figured out this. And it, it's actually been really awesome to, to watch that, that play out. So that's been fun. Obviously, yeah, we then had had uh, the pandemic kick off, which I'm very fortunate New Zealand has so far done reasonably well at managing. So life down here has been more or less uh, back to normal for, for a wee while. But that's where, you know, a lot of the time you get these people that sort of say, was I was I lucky or was I smart? I was definitely lucky here because we, we only came back <laughs> because of the child coming along. But yeah, and business has, has grown in that time. Uh, we did obviously have a few ups and downs last year, but on the whole, pretty positive coming into 2021. Good deal. Well, I'm glad they're opening stuff up out there. It seems hit or miss here in the States. And I actually got COVID. I had it over Christmas and New Year's. So that was that was a blast for the holidays. But uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's so sorry to hear that. It's, it's fine. It's just, it's life, right? But I'm glad things are going well for Raygun. It's one of those companies, one of those products that I have definitely uh, used and enjoyed and appreciated. And you guys, when I first got acquainted with you guys it, it was mostly bug tracking i think error error reporting and then you've added like application performance monitoring and all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. and yeah the the topic i have on my list is actually the past present future of software monitoring and it, it seems like you're kind of riding that evolution so i'm kind of curious when you started with raygun like what what was kind of the state of the art and let's just kind of walk through where we were, where we're at, and then where we're headed. Yeah. So when we when we launched Raygun, it did it originally Raygun was the product name. It wasn't even the company name. It was one of several products that we had built for software teams. And it was our first SaaS product. It was our first always on hosted solution. And prior to that was more of the virtual digital boxes, you know, download some software. Kind of a bit more like say the JetBrains model. Install a product, mm-hmm. use it for a year. If you want to keep paying for support, go for it. We built this crash reporting software. And the reason we actually did that, we launched it in 2013, was because my business partner and I, way back in 2004 when we met, we would often build our software where we would send emails to ourselves automatically when an unhandled exception occurred. And that was a key piece that allowed us to frequently deliver, in my view, better quality outcomes for our customers because we were aware of issues. I I remember coming into work on a Monday And I'd just kind of skim my inbox and be like, okay, these errors here, I can just quickly fix those up and and deploy them out. And so even though we went and built all these different businesses and all of these different products between 
2007 when we started our company and 2013 when we launched the Raygun product, the Raygun product was really us going, why don't we productionize that thing that we've been doing for a really long right. time? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I've heard this and, story before. <laughs> yeah. And then when, when it went out, it started to grow really well. And um, much thanks to uh, probably a, a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, Scott Hanselman, he mm-hmm. started using it in a mobile app that he was building and he actually already knew who we were, but he didn't realize that Raygun was us. And right. so he wrote this blog post going, hey, check this thing out. And that really kind of kick-started the growth of that product to the point where about a year after we launched it, it became very evident that we were um, making a mistake by not just going all in on the crash right. reporting stuff. And you know, I, I think part of that is... Uh, nearly everybody that was coming along and using our crash reporting product was coming from using nothing at all, right? So mm-hmm. anything felt like a massive step up. And I still to this day have this view. I'm like, every team needs a software crash reporting product. In my view, oh, yeah. it is the highest value product. And I, I mean, obviously I'd like prices to go higher because I sell the thing. But the fact of the matter is it's one of the most dirt cheap product ranges on the market across any of the, the, the ultimate oh, yeah. set in there as well. But when There are you a lot of them and that's part of it. Part of yeah, why but that's right. But that's, it's, it's kind of like a black box flight recorder, right? Uh-huh. And, and so if you don't know when, when your product explodes on your customer, <laughs> right? Like that's pretty bad. I often say, how far would have McDonald's got if they, if ever, like one in every fifth burger was rancid meat, right? But that's how the right. software industry works today is like, uh-huh. hey, we've had all this opportunity for so long that you can kind of screw up at a ridiculous <laughs> level and yeah. still win because <laughs> the whole, the entire world is evolving into, into being software powered. So anyway, we, we put that out there and, and that was really useful. And the, the plus side as well is, is if you actually end up spending a lot of money on a crash reporting product, and you want it the price to go down. The great news is, is that you can fix the bugs and make your customer happier, which will also lower your ray gun bill. Yeah, so that's so that's <laughs> that, that's a that's a good thing, right? Like, yep, um, yep. yeah, if you if you're more worried about your ray gun bill and the impact on your business of of you know delivering crap to your customers, um, there's something wrong. So so we started there, but then the the question sort of became, well, okay, so now that I can understand when something blows up. I would like something that suggests a little bit more about the experience, the, the qualitative experience that customers mm-hmm. have. And so that led us to, to building what's known as a real user monitoring or RUM tool. Not, not quite as delicious as it sounds, but that, that's measuring. <laughs> but rather <every> intoxicating. <laughs> <laughs> it can be. The, the design yeah, team yeah. have done great work on, on a beautiful UI. And so to like, lazily extend the analogy further on the black box flight recorder, I feel like a rum tool is like your airline ratings report, right? Like mm-hmm. n- nobody wants to take a 47 hour flight from Seattle to LA that has six stops, right? That's a bad right. experience. They want the fastest thing. And so it might not be that things are blowing up, but if they're slow, people don't like it. And so we brought that together and then we augmented that. So we started building these things to explain the health of their software because we actually had this, I won't name them, they are one of the, the, the larger APM players out in the market. But I remember uh, a company here in Wellington, New Zealand that was using them. And they were like, oh, it's great. The health score um, says that we're perfect. And, and then they said, the problem was is that we didn't realize that it said we were perfect because the uh, the 500 error page loads really fast. Um, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> 
And so oh. we're like, yeah. We, so we started connecting these dots and go, well, if we take the error information and the performance information, we can start building quite a comprehensive understanding right. of what's going on and we can tie this. So we can then again, we also are privacy minded. You know, people mm-hmm. have that as a front of mind thing. So how do we make sure that that data is all protected for our customers and we obviously don't sell it and blah, blah, blah. So that was all good. I won't go through the entire history of the company here, but ultimately we've ended up where we've kind of got everything that blows up, whether it's front end, back end, mobile, desktop, IoT, whatever. Uh-huh. We've got end user experience, whether it's mobile, PC, tablets, TVs, you know, we can track all of that. Mm-hmm. Lastly, we add, we did add the server side piece, which does code profiling and understands the code bottlenecks, not just the database bottlenecks. So that that means that we can kind of now cover front, back, you know, where the problems are, what the speeds are, and really help the teams mm-hmm. go quickly while also understanding what's going on there. The next phase of this, and I think, you know, today there's a lot of companies out there that are purporting to give the single pane of glass view on their software. Right. right? Uh, that's a common phrase we see. I I still think we're like day one like these tools um they do collect interesting information but it's also a wildly fragmented space Mm -hmm. nobody wants to have 50 tools but equally if you buy one it's kind of like not enough yeah and so we're seeing this consolidation going on and uh that's i mean that's one thing raygun has has been doing for years is is sort of self-developing a consolidated platform Mm -hmm. there so that that's where i kind of feel feel we are today I mean, I'll just keep talking straight into the future. No, I, I kind of <laughs> want to stop you for a minute. There, there are a couple of things, yeah, that you brought up that, that's kind of interesting. And one is, is that it seems like, like early on, there were a handful of tools that came out. One of them, I, I will name it. They were a competitor of yours, but they've changed their name. And, and this was probably the first one that I was exposed to was called Hot Toad. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like I said, they've changed their name. And then, the other one, I think, is the performance monitoring tool you're probably talking about because it was everywhere for a long time. And what's interesting is that I've seen this kind of expansion and contraction in the market where this particular performance monitoring tool went very enterprise, right? All the little people that were using them when they started, they priced them all out. They were gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this this particular company has now come back around and they're starting to offer smaller packages to people Mm-hmm. And and in some cases, I think they actually have a free offering. And so mm-hmm. it, that's been interesting to watch. The other thing that I've seen, though, is that, yeah, there's been consolidation. But generally, what I'm seeing is that most of these tools do most of the same things. And so what it really comes down to, at least for me, is how good is the stack trace? How, how reliable is the information? Uh, how actionable is the information? And things like that. And I still, I mean, I, I talked to you folks at Raygun. I've talked to a few folks at a few other companies. And, you know, you guys seem to focus on some of those things, you know, the, the actionability, the, the quality of the data and things like that. And some of these other companies, they just seem to expect people to just kind of get what they're getting, right? It's like, oh, well, I have this dashboard that tells me all this stuff and I should just understand it intuitively and it, it doesn't work that way and so you know you're talking about the single pane of glass it's it's not so much that you have a single dashboard it's that you have a place to go where you immediately know how critical the issues are that exist and whether or not you need to fix them and then what data you need to go do it and so we've seen this evolution but the evolution to me has been more 
an evolution as, to, as far as which markets people are going to trying to hit and serve. Mm-hmm. And then the other evolution that I'm seeing is around, you know, how you present the data in a usable fashion. The, the tools themselves don't seem like they've really evolved all that much. No, I think that's fair. I would also, before I sort of go back to the start of what you were saying, I think one of the things that happens a little bit in the categories in which we operate is with the overall growth of the software industry and mm-hmm. the the investment that's going in. And as people understand that, you know, $50 following, say, a $5, $10, 30000000 million software development is makes no sense, right? Like that's right. that's a really poor maintenance story. What we started out with at Raygun was was Jeremy and I. Jeremy's my business partner. We've always been the like, just tell me what to do. Like, I'll be honest, like, I don't have time to sit here and sift through all this. Just, <laughs> just tell me the freaking problem and what I need to do to fix it, right? And so we started that. And, and a lot of the feedback we always got from customers was one of the biggest strengths, does what it says it's going to do. Yep. <laughs> However, what we also started to notice was that there's this interesting behavior, and which is, if you don't provide an opportunity for people to almost muck in with their data and customize and do things, they they don't build a bond, mm-hmm. to be honest, with the software. I think that's why you find far less, say, developers discussing, say, SDKs as you do with developers who maybe discuss their favorite IDEs or the programming mm-hmm. language. Like The thing you engage with the most is typically the thing you start to care about the most. So if you build a software solution, which you kind of go, hey, I can use this for two hours a month and solve a bunch of problems, the perceived value is actually quite low because the attachment rate is low. So we started sort of opening up these escape hatches. I never want to lose sight of like, just give you the damn answer. But yeah, and what we found was that a lot of the historical tools, part of the reasons that people were so attached to them was because they, they'd built their own workflows. It's kind of like that for, for folks who are probably wondering for an example of this, look at Jira, right? Mm. Jira is about the most customizable, maybe after Salesforce, piece of software out there. And you go on something like a Hacker News and all you see is people raging about how it's garbage. Now, we use it, does the job, right? But I hate I Jira. Think, yeah, <laughs> I hate I Salesforce think, too. But it's so customizable that yes. I think that there's a handful of people that really build this connection to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's that. Jumping back a little bit to the um, the unnamed company that kind of went up market, right? I talk about it as being the dangerous but high quality problem, especially when you're talking about VC-backed companies, mm-hmm. right? Of which they were one, although they're, yes. they're not they're, they're, they're listed now. But you start off... And effectively, a VC-backed company gets to operate like a, a monopolist. They get to effectively use an antitrust tactic, which is we don't have to make our business viable because we've got money from somewhere else so that we can we can mm. just outlive everybody else in the category while we have artificially low prices. And then once we've killed everybody off or at least got enough market share, then we bait and switch that audience because we have to have the growth to support the valuations and repay those investors. Right. Right. And so what inevitably happens is you kind of get on this growth growth path where the growth becomes an unhealthy, an unhealthy part of the business because it's not what the customers are are looking for, right? Like they don't mm-hmm. want to feel like every I mean, that that exact company I've talked with friends who they're like, Oh my God, you know, like when they call me up, I'm just like, Oh, 
that's going to be to try and take more money off me, right? And that's, oh, man. That, that's lowering the trust. That's that's eroding yeah. that customer experience, right? But they've that's got a good a relationship to have with people. I yeah, have a neighbor right. like that. He's part of this multi-level marketing thing out here. And yep. he'll call me up. <laughs> and, and, and it's so funny because the conversation's always, hey, how's it going? I haven't talked to you for a while. I mean, he lives around the block. I see him at church, right? Well, yep. when we were going to church. But yeah, and then inevitably, it's like, hey, can I come over? I've got some questions about some software that we're working with. And when he shows up, he pulls out his phone. He pulls out the app for the MLM. And he didn't want my feedback. He wanted me to look at it so I would buy in. Yep, yep, that's you know? right. And so this is where one of the things I try to be, like, so so we lowered the price of our crash reporting product last year. And part of the reason that we did that, and this was to your point earlier about like, you don't feel like some of these products have really necessarily improved the application. And what I was going to say, but, but missed there was that, I suspect everybody in our categories is seeing the same thing, which is that the data volumes go up so so blimmin' fast that we that's have had true. to put so much work into the back-end scaling side of things that often that has come at the expense of features coming into the app. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, the reason we got to lower the price was I we are, we're not a VC-backed company. And so I I sort of thought I'd take part of the the sort of Jeff Bezos mentality, which was hey, well, if we just lowered our cost to serve by a reasonable amount, why don't we pass that savings straight on to the customer rather than saying, hey, we just maximized margin. That's going to that's gonna help us. It's like, well, let, let's help the customers out. And so that, that also has been an interesting thing within the business for helping the software teams understand that performance improvements lead to really positive business outcomes because we hear that a lot from customers, particularly around our, like our RUM tools and, and, and our APM tool because a lot of engineering team folks say, look, the hardest thing I have is trying to create a um, an argument with my manager on why we should invest in performance and right. why we should invest in fixing errors, right? Because I can't easily put a number on it. I can't build a story. Right. And, you know, I one of the things I'm, I'm going to start talking about more in my conversations with people is that flywheel, right? Like better quality software leads to happier customers, leads to them, you know, telling more people about it, which you know leads to better business out more customers, you know, like you just can, you can keep that virtuous feedback cycle going, which by the way, are you, are you aware of uh, what's coming in, in May from Google on, on web performance with the, no, I'm titles? not. So in May, this is going to be super interesting. In May, this like year, a podcast episode we should do, huh? Indeed. Well, in May, Google is going to start penalizing people's search result position based on the performance of their website. And so suddenly Uh you're going to see marketing teams going, hey, why why are we falling down the rankings? And suddenly, you know, a lot of businesses rely very heavily on their their positioning and search results, right? And so suddenly it's not just going to be the nerds that like stuff going fast trying to argue for it, but you're going to get the marketing team. You're going to get the, if you're, if you're the CEO, you should probably be aware this is coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this could really harm a bunch of businesses. Now, obviously it's not the only ranking factor. So it's not like, hey, you just went slow. So now you're on page 200. Right. But I, I'm actually really appreciative that Google are doing this, not just because i you know, own a business that sells a a way to help people here, but because none of us like slow software, right? Like they're doing this because it's, it's anti the user if it's slow. Mm -hmm. 
And so creating a, an incentive structure there, I think is going to be really powerful for making software better for everybody. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, I, I think the argument, you know, for or against performance usually just boils down to, is it fast enough? And so I would imagine that Google's probably going to have some fast enough metric, right? But yeah, if you're if you're really fast, then yeah, you're going to definitely benefit from it. Absolutely. The, the other thing, though, that is interesting about that in particular is that most of what Google is indexing is content. And so Correct. unless your content is driven by some kind of back-end software system, right? So it's not a static system. That's where it's really going to matter, right? So if you're if you're building some kind of directory system or if you're building some kind of other content system, you want people to go and search airline listings, right, for flying to France or something or New Zealand, right? That kind of stuff where you want people to find it. That's where these software systems are really going to come in. If I'm building a system that's behind a, a paywall and you know, I don't need Google to index it, yeah, that may not be as much of an issue. But yeah, anything where it's you know customer-facing, especially if you don't know who the customer is, right? Mm. Random people can come in. Yeah, that's where that's going to hit. Yeah, I do find it interesting debating with some folks about performance because you sort of touched on it there about like what is good enough. And I'll be honest, just just quietly between you and I, Charles, you know, the we had, we had a prospect at one point who was very upset that our RUM tool said that their web pages were slow to load because they took 30 seconds. And this person said, yeah, but it's an ERP system. That's pretty fast for an ERP system. And I was like, it doesn't matter. It's still a garbage experience for the customer, yeah. right? Like, and he's like, no, you don't get it. Like, this is fast in ERP land. I'm like, no, you don't get it. The user doesn't care. <laughs> they just want it to be fast, right? And so I'll, I'll at times, you know, not necessarily maybe pull my punches because I, yeah. I don't want to do that just to get a deal. I'm like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to start saying 30 seconds is a great load time just because that suits you. Well, and I'm I was sort of question. I'm going to ask you a question. You take 30, you, you spent 30 seconds thinking about your answer. And when you come back, I'm going to go, Oh, sorry. I was on Twitter. <laughs> well, this person at the point, they said, yeah, but it's not a B2C app. And I'm like, you know, the, you know, those C's, those consumers, you know, they go to work and they become the B, like they're still uh -huh. the same person. I don't come to work and then change my mind on my definition of speed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, and if Google can search the damn internet in like 0.1 of a second, I'm sure your ERP system doesn't have to go that slow. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, so I'm curious, you know, so we're we're at where we're at now. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there are, like you said, kind of the crash reporting tools, the RUM tools, the APM tools. H have we missed any other categories that we have now that we may or may oh, not have yeah. had? I mean, one of, one of the big issues that we have in the, the broader category of sort of tools designed to support software, let's say, mm -hmm. is that what's going on, and you can see this from some of the folks like, say, Datadog. You know, Datadog mm -hmm. have done phenomenally well. We use them for infrastructure monitoring. Raygun right. doesn't provide infrastructure monitoring. And so what they're kind of doing is this, like, let's just keep adding products, right? They're, they're like, it's like the AWS console, you know, like every uh -huh. time you go in there, there's three more things that they're hoping you'll attach to. Um, it's funny, so you pick two UIs I've gotten lost in. <laughs> like, exactly. I just gave up. 
<laughs> well, this is the interest like sidebar for a second on AWS. Like obviously early on, it was this thing where you'd go in and go, oh, well, that is uh-huh. useful. I'll start using it. And so yeah. the the flywheel for AWS, if you will, was to keep adding services to keep attaching more customers to get them to increase spend, which funds okay. more services, right? But now you're at the point where you're like, there's four or five services for everything. I'm so overloaded. I don't, I actually don't, I no longer default to going, does AWS have an answer for this? Because I'm just, I'm just so tired of all of the services and credit where it's due. They don't really shut them down either. So it's not Mm -hmm. like it's a constantly evolving set. Um, And that that is a good thing. Um, So there's a lot of stuff technically out there that could be in there. There's security, infrastructure, Mm -hmm. monitoring. There's people who want specialized Kubernetes observability, that sort of stuff. All of these things can be in there. And it's one of the... It's one of the challenges we have in in any sort of pre-sales call, for example, is inevitably every customer says, we would like to consolidate our vendors. Can you do this, this, and this as well? Which is why we do do three things. It was customer-led, but we're, we're kind of getting a little bit more picky about that and saying, look, maybe it's better if we just like there, there are complementary products that we will quite mm-hmm. happily promote to pre-sales customers saying, we work great with these folks or usually we can do this bit and we use this other company for this bit. We think they do a great job at it, you know? So that's the better way to, to look at it. You're not, that's why I don't actually really believe the single pane of glass play because nobody actually has all the bits. And if they all did, you probably wouldn't want to use it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's some truth to that. I mean, I, I think, I think there's some level of, if you just execute really, really, really well and really, really, really fast that you could add more panes to your glass, I guess, or more, you know, more (laughs) things that you could do. But yeah, if you're innovating on everything and Raygun's innovating on three things, I think Raygun can knock you out of the park on those three things any day of the week because you're working on everything. Well, I, I, I mean, I have this, everybody knows well, I'd say that they've at least heard. I don't know if they've fully internalized the power of focus, right? Yeah. And so I'll I'll take you back to when we when we had Raygun first out in the market, and we got a fairly serious acquisition offer maybe five months after we launched, and it caused my business partner and I to sort of sit back and go, "Hmm, there seems to be some some gold in these hills." but we've got all these legacy products that we're kind of managing as well. And so we thought about raising some capital. And like I said, we didn't, we didn't do the VC route. And so we, we, we raised a tiny, tiny amount of money. I was, a, I was first equal largest investor in that. It was an opportunity for me to, to put more capital into my own business. But we also bought in some money from some folks that we'd built some other businesses with, which was really cool. And then the revenue chart kind of it's the classic hockey stick right it's going up and then it starts going up really steep and i would have folks say what happened at that inflection point jd and i was like that's when we we bought in some extra capital and they're like what did you spend the money on and i was like well we didn't <laughs> and and you'd see this like what, what are you talking about well if you bought the money in and then the the, the trajectory right. changed and I said, look, it's the it's it's my strongest data point for focus because we had the capital. We could basically completely ignore the other things we were doing because we didn't need them to eat, right? Right. And and as soon as we went all in on this one thing, surprise, it worked a hell of a lot better. Like we were marketing it better, we were 
innovating it so much faster. Like it became a, the the common language inside the business was to talk about this single product rather than everything mm-hmm. we were doing. And we were a very small company at the time. And so nowadays I look at that as my like concrete, like not only do I, do I know because people say I should focus, but I actually have a quantifiable diagram, <laughs> you know, yeah. put it on the wall. This is the power of focus. And to, to sort of borrow lean against back again, I guess on, on Amazon for a second, I think that's where the real, well, one of the many pieces of magic lies in that business is that they, they have that two pizza team concept, right? It's mm-hmm. Amazon isn't really just a single entity. It, it's actually this, it, it's almost like a modern day conglomerate where the subsidiaries are generated internally by small teams that act like a startup. And that's how they're, they're sort of doing that. And they can fund rolling out more and more and more of these things because because they don't need the whole org to focus on, you know, what's going on in code right. pipeline, what's going on in WAF service, things like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, focus is certainly important. We don't want to try and boil the ocean. In fact, every time we've released a product, I promise the team we won't be shipping another product for at least a year, you know, while we while we <laughs> <made> one. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. So I, I kind of want to push us back onto the, I, I love this and I'm, I'm eating up because, yeah, I need to focus better. But one one thing that I, I kind of want to push us back toward the topic at hand is, all right, so we've got, you know, semi-consolidated stuff, right? You know, you, mm-hmm. you have three tools that you offer, you know, somebody else might have more, somebody else might just do one thing. There are a whole bunch of different tools out there. Where Where is it going from here, right? What, what, what yeah. does this look like, you know, maybe in three, five years? Yeah, so I should say, I think if the consolidation thing is more of a, a business side effect than really the future of monitoring per se. I think I I remember having this discussion with somebody from Microsoft and he was chatting to me about how could you observe the entire operation of a computer right down to the registers on the CPU, right? Because Mm -hmm. in effect, you can't measure these things because are in motion doing stuff and the Mm -hmm. act of measuring it starts to influence it and blah, 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 blah. But it's a really good. So one area we're starting to get to is that the depth of information is a lot better. So this is not to pile on the unnamed vendor from earlier, but if I was to compare our APM product between them and us, they have a much, much broader offering in APM. They've been around a lot longer. However, what we do is we, we capture data a lot deeper. So I mentioned that the code level analysis. And so what we're starting to see now, and this is what Datadog have done as an example, is they've now split APM into two categories and called one code profiling and the other one APM. Okay. And that, and that my view is I think that's, that's marketing BS to me. I think an APM should do code <laughs> profiling. I just, I don't know why you're paying for two products that do this, right. you know, high level, the same thing other than to maximize you know, customer spend. So we we started when we when we built our one, we were kind of going, well, you know what? It, the 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 other one, the unnamed one, is really good for telling you the duration of a request and what mm-hmm. database queries were slow. And heaven forbid the issue be in the code somewhere, right? Like because they're not really <laughs> yeah. they're not going to tell you anything about that. And that was fine because to be honest, back then and what they pioneered an industry, right, was that was arguably the right balance of performance impact of being able to monitor without interfering too heavily with the app itself running. Uh-huh. And so where we've got to now is like, okay, there's all these improvements, you know, the, while Moore's law may not have really 
kept going, that the actual the resources available are getting embarrassingly, you know, rich for us. And so that was where when we were starting at more of a, a blue ocean view of this, we could kind of go, no, this should be doing this from the ground up from day one, right? You should be able to understand what the code is doing um, and find the bottlenecks there too. Uh, and that that's an example of where the industry is going. And the reason I talk about that CPU observation question is because broadly speaking, I think that's one one major theme is the ability to collect far more data and give you far more actionable insights about what's going on in your in your code. So rather than just looking, well, this session length starting to, or sorry, this request length is, is taking a bit too long and there was one gnarly query in there, let me start digging around. I want to just be able to see the entire details of the request so I don't have to go digging. That sort of stuff is coming coming in a lot more. We're starting to see things like distributed tracing and being able to correlate different events from different systems together. And yep. that doesn't just mean like, well, my API talks to this background service and I can get a distributed trace. To give you an example using using Raygun, you can I could go in and I can find because I choose to identify you, I could find your account as a user of Raygun. I could look at every request you've ever made against our service. I could see the timing of it. I can see the errors in it. I can see the load times. I can see, I can go down and tell you exactly how long that helper method inside our C-sharp code base took on your particular request. And so yeah. correlating between the silos and that, that is a little bit of that single pane of glass piece, but being able to bring all of that stuff together is becoming more powerful. But oddly enough, for a category of services being made available to software teams, there is a, there is a real lack of APIs and integrations between those silos in a way that lets you correlate the information well between them, if that makes makes sense so mm-hmm. i can see that sort of opening up a bit more where you don't necessarily want to require just that the vendor do that correlation between their own products there should be no reason you can't do that across the boundaries and that's obviously going to be more and more important with the the cloud players out there as well the last trend and i would actually argue probably the most important one and it, even though it would probably sound like the least important to to quite a few listeners we've got to make the end user the central entity of any monitoring product, right? Yep. It's just machine data. Human beings have never, ever, ever written a piece of software that ultimately wasn't developed to serve a human being, right? Even if you built something to, I don't know, feed your cat, you're doing that to help yourself or and make yourself feel good because you love the cat, right? It's not because the cat turned up with $500 and said, build me a feeding software <laughs> system, okay? But, because we're not connecting these stories to the customers, we're not building the business value case. We're not enabling uh-huh. our software teams to communicate clearly across the rest of the business. They can't articulate the value of certain things. They can't understand the impact of, an, of sort of the, the performance or the errors and whatnot. And so part of that whole, like, just give them the answer is how do we start making it less about machine data and more about the customers coupled with the machine data to help the team fix the problems for those customers? Because mm-hmm. really that's all you need the machine data for, right? Is to, to yeah. help you understand there was an issue and then also what do I need to know to help me go and fix the issue? Right. But really it's about the customer. And don't get me wrong. I mean, we didn't cover it at the start, but I, I love writing code. I've coded for, for decades 
but I do often feel that as an industry, I can kind of, I can, I can understand why a lot of people really sort of almost hit a limit in their career because they, they, they don't know how to communicate outside yeah. of the tech team. And then they get frustrated and, and whatnot. And it's like, but they don't understand. It's like, yeah, but you're, you're not, it's like you're speaking a different language. It's not their <laughs> fault, right? Oh, you, you've been yeah. watching me have conversations with other people over the last few days. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, honestly, I see it as, it sounds really harsh, but I used to say quite frequently, I don't fundamentally believe that a lot of uh, software folks have earned the right to be at the leadership table. Yeah. And part of that is just the, and it's not an insult. It's the immaturity of our industry. And that immaturity, going right back to what we were talking about earlier, is actually driven by the embarrassing riches of opportunities in front of us right now. It is a gold rush in software. Mm-hmm. And it will be a gold rush more or less for our whole our whole lives, right? It's allowed us to perform poorly on, on a lot of different dimensions and get away with it because the value created was still just so, so high that people would dismiss yeah. it. But as we start to get more mature, and and part of this is tooling, part of it is mentoring, part of it is exactly what we talked about before we jumped on the, the podcast, You know, helping mentor and grow these teams yeah. and figuring out the right people to manage. That is going to be just as transformational for the software industry as any particular piece of tech, in my mm-hmm. view. Yeah. yeah, I agree. It's I can't remember who I was having the conversation with, but it, it was earlier today. And yeah, we were talking and somebody basically said, well, you know, software developers are introverts. And I said, look, I said in the 80s, you could get away with being the lone gunman that would, mm-hmm. you know, t- take in a spec and spit out the software and everybody's good with it. In the 90s, things got a little more complicated and you had to work with other developers in order to get the job done. 2000s was yep. more of the same. We started getting agile development because it didn't work anymore to have people isolated into those silos. And now at this point, if you can't work with people outside of your team, then you are not as effective as the people who can. And I think that... Uh, I don't want to draw too much on the prior conversation that we had, but we talked about that folks being, you know, moving into management, right? And how some people are surprised to find themselves there uh, and then they don't like it. And that, you know, that's fine as long as there's a path back to where they want to be. But I think there are some of those folks that either innately or through prior learning do learn to communicate well. And that's where, you know, the folks, maybe the next tier up start going, oh, Sally over there is a great communicator. She'd well, they never say manager. that. <laughs> what they say is Sally gets it. Yeah, that's true. Yep. That's yep. the perception. And- <laughs> Sally understands what we're trying to do, so we're going to promote Sally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if Sally doesn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just and, and yeah. yeah. And it's not it's not that they're recognizing any particular skills. I think some of the more aware people will. But for the most part it's we work well together. There's something there that connects and that's why we're going to promote her. Mhm. So I think I think there's that they are probably the the big three sort of things: further integrating the tools, building it around the actual customers and the people that you're actually trying to trying to serve with the software, leveling up the the, the broader industry that's in there, and being able to collect more data without having an impact on on the software that you're actually trying to monitor. Yeah, 
I think that the big yeah. that that probably the top three things. There'll obviously be bits and pieces that come out around the fringes as well, but that that, that the bits I see as the future in there. I don't believe really that things like AI ops and all of that. I think that's a uh, I think that's just <laughs> marketing BS. To be honest, is I I think there's so much low hanging fruit before you even get yeah. to AI ops that it's it's silly to uh to to sort of think that that's that's going to change the game any day soon. Yeah, I think no. That's think that's not to poo-poo AI in general. I mean, particularly around this sort of data for for software teams. No, I agree. I think for the most part, with the AI ops, you're going to start gleaning value out of that as we continually go deeper. We continually mm-hmm. get more data, and then it can start to recognize behaviors and effectively predict them before they happen. But yep. for the most part, yeah, all these other tools. The integration, the customer focus, you know, or the end user focus, I guess, is the way you put it. And just just the way that some of this stuff comes together. I, I'm really excited for it, to be honest. And I've seen some systems that kind of do some of this stuff, right? They either aggregate data from systems like Raygun and, you know, whatever other systems are out there. Or that do the monitoring on your microservices and your monoliths and all the other things that connect to it and your databases. And so they're able to trace everything through, but a lot of those tools, they still have room to grow. And so it's, it's interesting to see how people approach it, whether it is the, you know, single pane of glass, I guess, that pulls all the data together from all these different systems or whether they try and do it all on their own. And then, yeah, just tracking that request or that, response or whatever it is all the way through the system and back out as well as just use something there'll be a bunch of folks listening to this and this is not a criticism that won't be doing anything today and it's that whole like if i don't know i mean it doesn't happen so much these days but i remember uh we we were we were i had a sales call with a um by the way, I've mentioned sales a few times. You can absolutely just go and sign up for free. You don't have to talk to anybody if you don't want to, but this was a large this was a large customer. And I remember him saying to me that they were, and they were, they were very, very large. And he was looking at our tiers at the time. And he goes, 25,000 errors a month in the startup plan? He said, I don't, I don't think we would have 25,000 errors. That, that, <laughs> seems, that seems like a lot. And he put it in, I, I think they were averaging something like 280,000 an hour, you know, uh-huh. and it was like, oh my goodness. And it was like, yeah, this, this is a whole thing that if you don't actually like observe or monitor this thing, you presume that it must be good. Yeah. And so that, that, that's the other thing. So if you're not doing anything today, just get something and it doesn't have to be Raygun, just get something because even if it's not Raygun, I'm still being selfish because I might be a user of your software and I would rather it be fast and bug free, please. <laughs> yeah. You kind of wiped out in the middle of that. But oh, we'll, yeah. it up. well, I just, yeah, I was just saying like, uh, it doesn't have to be our product because I might be a user of your software yeah. and I would like it to be bug free and fast, even if it's an ERP system. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, and, and I've experienced this with companies that I've either consulted with or worked for where they pulled something like this in. And, you know, yeah, they're getting thousands and thousands of error reports per hour, right? And they're like, holy cow, we didn't even realize. And then they go in and they fix one or two bugs and it cuts that error reporting in half, right? Yes. Because it's the same thing over and over and over again, right? And then what happens is somebody will be talking to sales or support the next day and go, I don't know what you did, 
right? Yep. But my experience got better, right? It, it would hang or it would not respond or it would do this thing or it would, you know, whatever. And however it was manifesting for them, it quit doing that. And it's it's just funny to me how just one little thing, right? You just monitor it. And the other thing that I'll say is that almost every app that I've worked on, it's usually a handful of bugs that are causing like 80%, 90% mm-hmm. of the error mm-hmm. reports. And so you go yep. fix those things and yeah, it gets way better for everybody. Absolutely. We certainly see that with larger customers. It can be a bit intimidating at the volume. And usually all I say is like, firstly, don't don't sort the groups by the number of errors, sort them by the affected customers. Mm-hmm. Highest number of affected customers to least. Every sprint, if that's what you do, just pick the top two things, give them to the team, make sure they fix those two. Hopefully they don't take that that long, that much out of the sprint and just repeat that process. We do see sometimes that developers are afraid that things like an error reporting tool is going to be used against them. So we, we were, and to be honest, this is one of these weird dichotomies where, you know, I said, look, most of our customers will never talk to a salesperson. But it can be where talking to sales can be good because this is where we often will make sure that if, you know, the manager's on the line, we want to make it very clear that zero bugs is pretty much unobtainable if you're at any sort of scale at all, right? And so making sure we can be in those conversations to ensure that we're educating the manager without the, you know, it starts to sound like an excuse if you're, if, if it's just the engineer to the manager. But mm-hmm. if it's the vendor saying, look, we can help you improve the quality, but, you know, getting, it's kind of like test coverage, very little benefit in trying to get to 100% test coverage. But, you know, if you've got 40% that covers the main parts of your app, you're, you're, pre- you're, you're doing pretty well, yep. right? So that's where having those conversations can actually be be quite useful yep. in there. Makes sense. And like you said, I mean, it, it usually doesn't cost much to sign up for one of these services. I know Raygun's super affordable. Start at Most... four bucks now. Oh, wow. That, that, no, <laughs> seriously. Usually it's like 10 bucks <laughs> or 20 bucks to get started. And yeah, four yeah. bucks. That, uh. that's, that's easy. But yeah, then... <laughs> I mean, even if it's a hundred bucks and you can attract more customers or retain the customers, you reduce your churn, I mean, holy cow, you know, it's totally worth it. So, But then that is on us though, to make sure that we continue to involve our software to be able to tell you those stories that say, you know, you fix these eight things and your churn rate improved this much, or you you increase sales by this much, right? Like the tool should make it easy for you to be able to turn up at whether you have a Friday meeting or similar and be able to sort of basically brag that your team kicked butt, right? That's what you want. Yep, absolutely. Well, the other thing is, is that I've also been in the shoes of, uh, if you want me to consult on this project, then you have to have a tool like Raygun. And then Mm -hmm. we install it. And then there's a major event, right? At some point, because there's going to be a major event at some point. And, And so we get in, and they're like, okay, well, we got to gather all the lags and I'm, logs. And I'm like, no, 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 right? You know, mm-hmm. we've, we've got all this data in, in this tool. So we go look in the tool and, you know, solve the problem much faster. And then they're going, man, that's way easier than digging through all the logs and crap, right? And so, yep. It, well, the it, logs are also a huge risk now with things like GDPR. You know, a software developer yeah. going, why don't I just log out to a, a file that sits you know, alongside my app. Cool. So when somebody asks for all of their data or to be expunged from your system, who's the person going and 
checking those yeah. things. But there's, there is benefit to service-enabled versions of some of these technologies, even if you could just you know, put in a, a gem or a NuGet package or whatever. Compliance is going to become a bigger and bigger thing. Yep, yep, absolutely. Sorry, I think well, I cut you off there. Sorry, Charles. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I was just thinking about that a little bit earlier when you were talking about you know, tracing one request or one customer through mm-hmm. the system. Yeah, there are privacy concerns with that too. And so it's it's interesting too, just kind of watching these tools evolve to provide you the the valuable data and still comply with, you know, any regulations that you have or even just any concerns you have around privacy. I've seen a lot of companies that don't necessarily have a regulatory burden, but they don't want to put anybody's data at risk. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just nice to see, you know, that, yeah, all of this is contained in this tool. I don't have to go and fight the system in order to get what I need or go sit on the DevOps guy until he gets it to me or whatever. Yeah, there's certainly that whole treat PII data as, uh, as toxic waste, right? It's, uh, it's a liability. And I, I've seen there's a range of tools now coming out as well that are just trying to get folks off of some of the ad tech offerings, you know, like mm-hmm. privacy first Google Analytics alternatives. We've got a few people who kind of use our RUM stuff for that a little bit, you know, where it's just there's an increasing discomfort with feeding more and more data into the into the Googles and Facebooks and, you know, those, those sorts of companies where they, they, to be honest, you know, they're probably going to have top-notch security around that, but it's distasteful to know that you're feeding that that sort of algorithmic engine. Obviously, Apple have kind of made that a cornerstone of their differentiation, you know, not to to try and leverage the, the, the PII data in the same way. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up. If people want to go check out Raygun, what's the best place for them to go and do that? I tend to suggest the internet. Which is <laughs> I've heard of it. I've heard of it. It's catching on uh, at raygun.com. R a y g u n dot com. Yep. So there is free trial for for any of the products. And if you again wanting to demonstrate that customer centricity, but if you have any issues, if anything's confusing, or if you don't like it, I am JD at raygun.com. I would love to know because I, I you know as as a nerd come business owner. Customer feedback is mana from heaven, right? It helps us improve. Not nothing is ever perfect, uh, and I just want to make it the best the best solution we can can make for everybody. So do do try it out. Do let me know how you find it. I'm also on Twitter as Trask JD. Yep. All right. Very cool. All right. We'll go ahead Thanks and wrap up here. Thank you. This was really fun. And yeah, max out everybody. <laughs>